So, Lisa, I've been thinking about Dracula lately. Well, you've got to follow your heart, Miles. I mean, yes, that, obviously. But also, you know how Blade the Vampire Hunter is super intent on destroying Dracula? I do. Well, Dracula's been around being a vampire jerk for centuries now, right? Are there any other vampires in the Marvel Universe who are seeking revenge on the Big D? Hannibal King, Lilith, and Spitfire, for starters. There's probably a few more, but my favorite is Bessie. Bessie? Bessie was an ordinary cow living in 17th century Switzerland. She was a happy cow, and Hans the farmer loved her and took care of her. Then, one night, Dracula came along and slurped up a bunch of her blood like a jerk. The next morning, Hans found her desiccated corpse and buried her, but three days later, she rose from the dead as Hellcow, a blood-sucking bovine fiend who fed on farmers as she single-mindedly, but four-stomachedly, sought vengeance on the fiend who had turned her. Wow! I kind of wish Hellcow had gotten her own series. Me too, but seeing as Howard the Duck staked her, pun intended, in her first appearance, an ongoing title was kind of out of the question. Bummer. Agreed. Actually, there are a bunch of characters from the 70s Howard the Duck comic that I'd love to see get their own book. Garko the Frogman, Dr. Bong, the Kidney Lady, Heathcliff Rochester, Gothic real estate agent. Did anyone who first showed up in one of those old Howard the Duck stories ever get their own comic? Yeah, there was this one group of costume characters who first showed up in the Marvel Universe in Howard the Duck number 12. They had a pretty successful one-shot. Sweet. Who were they? The Bad Kiss. What?! I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Lisa Winters, subbing in for Jay Edidin. And we're here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time somebody did. Welcome to episode 258 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to you, Lisa. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It was very kind of you. So I'm trying to describe uh, how we know each other. We know each other through Hub, uh, who does the podcast Tighten Up the Defense, but you also do a podcast with Hub. Yes. Hub is also my husband, and I'm not being creepy. That's his name. (laughs) Um, No, uh, so we do a podcast called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. And that's a really horrible title that I have to remember to say every single time. (laughs) I'm impressed, though. You you did it on the first try. It would take me like six. I've been practicing. It usually takes six. Uh, Fair enough. (laughs) But today we are going to be talking about kind of a strange comic book comic strip thing. Thing. So I was thinking, I know you're not as like dedicated and experienced of a comics person as uh, Hub or I are, but you have read a lot of comics um, analytically through that show. You've got some experience with comic strips, and as I understand, you've got some lit crit experience of your own as well. Yeah, I, um, I like to read things maybe a little too critically and i'm really i'm the biggest thing that the, the the biggest thing that i'm excited about is i am curious about how comics are made it is a medium i'm not super familiar with so i'm always trying to figure them out when i read and i maybe am a little bit too generous with um <laughs> uh like allowing plot points. I'm I most recently I'm fascinated by the fact that it's actually a business that you have to continue to produce things that people purchase. So, uh talking about that in the context of this book is really exciting. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, I was only able to find a little bit about how this event, which is Spider-Man Mutant Agenda, came about. So we're probably going to be guessing a lot, perhaps constructing an alternate past that may or may not have connections to reality, but this is an X-Men podcast, so I feel like that's kind of appropriate. That's the fun part. Right. (laughs) So Spider-Man Mutant Agenda. This came out in 1994. It was originally supposed to be the first ever comic book newspaper strip crossover, but for whatever reason that maybe we can decide what that was, that has been lost to time... It wasn't a crossover. Instead, we have the same story told from two perspectives. We had it in the newspaper strip that was Spider-Man. Yes, there was a Spider-Man newspaper strip for, like, a really long time. And then we had it in a three-issue miniseries that was coming out simultaneously. So it's kind of cool. You have this same story framework, but you have two very different takes on the whole thing. Yeah, so the thing that I was most excited about was kind of figuring out how it works in two different mediums. Like the comic book is, you know, this beautiful long form with all this paneling and really pretty colors and all sorts of stuff. And then the comic strip itself is three panels, really, really traditional, like super reminded me of what I used to think comics were before I actually read them. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And, you know, very formulaic where the first panel reminds you what happened last time, the middle one, something occurs, and the third panel sets up what happens next time. It's it's sort of comforting. Like, I grew up reading newspaper comics myself. That was, like, part of my daily routine. And so, for me, this was kind of like being a kid again. Yeah. It was, for me, I read a lot of comics, actually, right after college, like the newspaper funny papers. Um, for me, it was more interesting uh, as a way to, like, think about how people have to tell stories. You have to tell the story in this super truncated way. Your motivations become really, really short and to the point, but you're still able to have the basic framework and the basic tension there. So it was really, really fascinating to see how people worked, honestly. That's what I saw in this in this strip. Exactly, and we'll get to that. So the way we're going to do this is we're first going to go through the comic strip version and then basically go back through the story in the comic book version and talk about some of those differences. And the parts that are just even more bonkers by comparison, like... This is not as weird as some of the stories we've covered on this show, but there's some bizarre stuff in here. What would you say is one of your favorite bizarre things? One of my favorite bizarre things from this story or in general? (laughs) That's a longer conversation from the story. Uh, From this story, I think I probably most appreciated there's a scene later on we'll talk about this where the hobgoblin has snuck into a scientific base he notices that spider-man and beast are there with him so he just knocks out a guard and then in this super robotic formal language just says spider-man and beast have been detected uh find and destroy and like everyone just goes with it like the way that motivations are just so simple and easily manipulated in this are glorious that's beautiful and you also see so much of that in the comic strip as well. Mm-hmm. Did you say comic book or comic strip? Uh, I was talking about the comic strip, actually. Okay, You're totally cool, right. Cool. No, it's, and, but I mean, you have to have that because otherwise <laughs> there's, there's, there's no motivation in that. It's so difficult to like create character and depth in those three panels. Exactly. Yeah. Now, this wasn't the only adaptation, the two that we're going to be covering, of Spider Man Mutant Agenda. This was adapted a third time in the mid 90s Spider Man cartoon, the animated series that came out around the same time as X Men, the animated series. It was a two parter. And because we want this episode to be shorter than a feature length film, we're only going to talk about that a little bit, but we will get to it at the end. I know we had a lot of people on Twitter who were excited about that. We're totally going to mention it, and that part's pretty great as well. As far as other backgrounds, so when I was a kid, 
I heard about this trip, and I heard about this crossover, rather, because I read all the newspaper funnies, and I religiously clipped out every single one, and I still have them. Jay actually decoupaged them onto an Ikea storage box that we moved a bunch of our stuff in the last time we moved. Um, so it still exists in that form. What I found out, though, is that there was a Spider-Man Mutant Agenda number zero that had places you could paste in the individual strips, and I am so mad I didn't know that at the time because that would have been the coolest thing when I was a kid. One of my favorite things about people who are really into comics is how much you love to collect things. It's a really, it's like you get to like have a little treasure. Exactly, and that would have been a treasure that I had built myself with scissors and tape, so only built in the most rudimentary of senses, but still. But I mean, I, I also honestly think that's some of the genius behind the business is that you have all of these things that people want to have for themselves and, like, create this whole kind of treasure trove. Everyone who collects comics is actually a dragon. Basically, it's our horde. It is our four-color horde. (laughs) On that note, let's talk about Spider-Man the Mutant Agenda, the newspaper strip version. But first, let's talk a little about our heroes. Hank McCoy, the Beast, was one of the original five Silver Age X-Men. He must have gotten bored while the book was in reprints in the early 70s, though, because he quit the team and got a job as a scientist for the Brand Corporation. While he was there, he discovered, quote, the hormonal extract, the chemical cause of mutation, which he promptly drank in order to disguise himself for a mission, turning furry and gray. The uh, blue would come later. Unfortunately, he forgot to ask Siri to set a timer for an hour, so he got stuck in that form and spent the next few weeks attempting and failing to science himself back to his previous form before skipping town. As for Peter Parker, Spider-Man, I mean, okay, let's be real, everybody knows his deal. He was bitten by a radioactive spider, and now does everything a spider can. Except that his webs come out of wrist launchers instead of his butt. That's probably for the best. Anyway... This was written by, hey, Stan Lee, and penciled by Larry Lieber, who, as I recall, was Stan Lee's brother. Yes, he was. So, in the first strip, Spider-Man actually tells the reader that you should clip them out, and Spider-Man, I totally did. Peter Parker, please be proud of me. But I kind of want to go through the first handful of strips. The the first week, which isn't actually as much as it sounds, because they're very short, aside from Spider-Man's instructions, just to give everyone a feel for how this is constructed. Do you want to be MJ or Peter, Lisa? Uh, I'll be MJ, I think. All right, so, strip number two. Peter, the hobgoblin broke out of jail. Yes, I read it. It was you who captured him. What if he wants revenge? Strip number three. I'm scared, Peter. The hobgoblin swore revenge, and now he's free. No problem, honey. He's after Spidey, not Peter Parker. But hey, look at this. Question mark. Strip number four. Look, the Brand Corporation is sponsoring a conference on mutations. So? Don't you see? Brand deals with genetics and DNA research. I'm talking human mutation. They might furnish a clue to my own spider power. Strip number five. Petey, what does mutation have to do with your spider power? Everything, honey. A spider bite caused me to mutate into Spider-Man years ago. While some people, like the Beast, are born mutants. The Beast? Strip number six. Peter, who is that beast you mentioned? It's just a nickname. He's okay. For a mutant. I'll clue you in later, honey. Gotta get ready for that lecture. And so, yeah, we see this repeated structure where 
Of the three panels, and occasionally there are two, but it still roughly works the same way, first we have a reminder of what happened last time, then some sort of action, some new event, then a panel that leads us into next time. And it's actually brilliantly designed, because you can skip a day or two. I mean, maybe you just don't read the paper that day or whatever. The newspapers are disposable, and you basically still know what's going on. Yeah, and uh, even the Sunday strip... Like, kind of recaps the whole week. It's pretty brilliant. Exactly, because on Sundays, there are color strips. And from what I understand, some papers only got the the weekend ones. So they had to basically tell the entire story on their own in a vaguely coherent fashion. This is actually why I thought the comic strip Mark Trail was so normal. Because my newspaper <laughs> only got Sunday Mark Trail. And it was like, Mark going, hey, here's this thing about an animal. Now you know. And I didn't learn until recently from Jay that apparently was also all about, like, tackling people and cocaine and stuff like that. <laughs> I didn't have that personal experience, but I'm really grateful that you shared yours. <laughs> Man, I, the world is just a, a larger place now. <laughs> um, the one thing I did want to mention about the, the the strips in general is everyone has hero jaw. It's amazing to me. Okay, so you're absolutely right. And I thought about that, and here's my theory. So newspaper comic strip readers, they usually read the funnies over breakfast, right? Or at least like I did. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you're a regular newspaper strip reader, you're also a regular breakfast eater. You're not going to be skipping that meal because you have something to look forward to, to see what Spider-Man is up to. And like, I don't know, BC, if you're into that, I guess. (laughs) And so that means you're probably having a lot of milk in your cereal since that's a very common breakfast, which means your skeleton, including your jaw, is goddamn invincible. And so I think Larry Lieber figured, hey, these readers just want to see people like them, you know? They don't want to – they want to be able to identify with Peter Parker. Let's give him a gigantic, practically adamantium chin. I think that's one way that they're trying to build their audience is to create relatability. Totally. Exactly. It's, it's quite brilliant. I mean, you know, it's, it's the business you were talking about, those little business tips. <laughs> So, yeah, Peter Parker is going off to this lecture from this dude named Mr. Landon from the Brand Corporation. If the Brand Corporation sounds familiar, well, we'll get to that later. And what, when he shows up there, he sees the Beast, you know, Hank McCoy. Uh, he's not blue because it's black and white and it's, it's not a weekend strip yet, but he is in the best disguise ever, one we've seen before. A fedora and a trench coat. Yeah, Uh, and as we all know from reading comics or seeing movies or whatever, that is the perfect disguise. Nobody can ever see through it. Uh, Peter notices him, but the Beast doesn't know Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that he um, Peter Parker only notices the Beast because of his spidey, spidey sense. I think so. I, I love how Spider-Man's spider sense, usually it just alerts him to danger, but it also alerts him to plot. To whatever he needs to be alerted to at that given time. <laughs> Very convenient. <laughs> now, Spider-Man and Beast had met each other before. The first issue where they met is actually one of my favorite Silver Age issues. Uh, that is where an injured Banshee tells the X-Men to beware the spider. And uh, they find Spider-Man and figure that that's the Spider-Banshee was talking about the kick banshee's ass in reality it was a giant spider robot and it was just a complete misunderstanding that led to like two issues of them punching each other (laughs) you gotta get that plot somehow (laughs) yeah you know i i've poo-pooed the silver age a lot but it's got its charms it does and it's also really nice to see how things have evolved from there like one of the things i noticed about the comic strip itself was it did have kind of a silver age feel a little bit more because it was so had to be so plot driven am i totally off base or is that no i well i think part of it i think there's that and there's also just that it's written by stan lee who is like the writer that basically defined at least on the marvel side the silver age and it's got that feel yeah absolutely um and the hero jaws don't forget that. Oh, yeah. Well, Hero Jaws are, are, are timeless. As long as there is breakfast cereal, there will be Hero Jaws. 
So the Hobgoblin attacks the conference out of nowhere. We don't need explanations. He just shows up and starts pumpkin bombing the shit out of everything. That's how he is, though. I mean, have you met a Hobgoblin recently? Uh, not recently, no. It's, I think they're, they're endangered these days. Like, they're on the protected <laughs> goblins list. Uh, but so the Hobgoblin, if people aren't familiar, most people are familiar with the Green Goblin. He was in the uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, played by that awesome actor whose name I can't remember right now, Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the Hobgoblin is like if you took the Green Goblin and then added more Halloween. <laughs> more Halloween. I feel like he has a pointier nose and like is a little bit more like eh, eh, eh. <laughs> He totally is. And spoiler for when we talk about the animated series episode that uh, covered this or episodes, I should say, Mark Hamill voices him and he basically just sounds like the Joker. <laughs> Which is super reasonable in my opinion. I completely agree. I could listen to Mark Hamill do basically whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually the third Green Goblin. It doesn't really come up in the uh, newspaper strip, but for the sake of completion, this is Jason Masondale or Mackendale, who used to be a villain named Jack O'Lantern, who is even Halloweenier. Um, and so Spider-Man changes into costume in this chaos and helps Beast save civilians. Um, but then Hobgoblin steals the DNA notes, which apparently contain the entirety of the research about DNA that they're doing right now over at Brand Corporation, and he just skedaddles. I just love that they're referred to as DNA notes. I mean, what else would you call them? Uh, you know, just be descriptive. Why, why put all those fancy acronyms on there? Why use that science speech? Just be down to earth. Be the type of scientist you could just sit down and have a beer with. I think that is actually who Landon is. A beer and, like, some general anti-mutant sentiments. Exactly. Beer and bigotry. Two great tastes. <laughs> So the Hobgoblin does manage to get away because Spider-Man and Beast are distracted, like preventing people from not getting crushed by rubble, but not before Spider-Man puts a spider tracer on the Hobgoblin's glider. It's sort of like, I mean, I assume most people are familiar with Green Goblin or Hobgoblin, at least from the Spider-Man movies, but it's kind of like he's riding on this uh, bent dumpster lid that somehow <laughs> looks very evil. I don't know how else you would describe it. Um, I always think of it as kind of like a vaguely spacey sort of device. Like, it's like if you ha- took something from uh, the this, this Star Trek universe, but like the first Star Trek, <laughs> and you put it into a comic book. It's kind of got that feel, yeah. yeah. It's charming, and it looks really fun to ride around on. I was always jealous of the Green Goblin and Hobgoblin. Yeah, is that your favorite mode of um, transport in superhero world? Oh, man, I- I'm a sucker for jetpacks, I gotta say. Mm-hmm. And it always bothers me that they're not used in more characters' day-to-day lives, like as you're going through just a New York City scene. Like, if jetpack technology exists, why aren't they as common as those damn scooters? that are everywhere these days. Oh my gosh, that is a million bajillion dollar idea, Miles. Oh man, (laughs) probably uh, the million bajillion dollars would have to go to uh, lawsuits for injury. (laughs) So because this is the Marvel Universe, and specifically because it's a comic strip where we don't need to go too deeply into motivation, Spider-Man and Beast chase after Hobgoblin, and everyone immediately assumes that therefore they're all in cahoots. And I really enjoy the dialogue uh, from the bystanders, the angry bystanders, and a cop in this strip right here. First the Hobgoblin, now them! There's always trouble when their kind appears! What do you mean, their kind? They're trying to help! They're freaks! You can't trust freaks! I mean, in all fairness, you can't trust freaks. Legit, right? I've seen that movie. It was creepy. (laughs) What I really appreciate here, though, is that in, like, the four seconds it takes this to happen, somebody already has whipped up, like, an anti-Spider-Man picket sign with Spider-Man's face with the big anti-sign over it. That is quick work. Well, you know, Jane Jonah Jameson actually had those printed out in his newspaper, so you could just slap them on a billboard or slap them on a poster. (laughs) So people just, like, had them ready just in case? Totally. I mean, Spider-Man's a menace. I don't know if you heard that. Or a threat. One of the two. 
So our heroes, undeterred by the angry mobs, because, I mean, let's face it, they're everywhere in the Marvel Universe, follow Hobgoblin and his spider tracer to the Brand Corporation building. And it's actually kind of charming. As Spider-Man says, I'll take the high road. And I'll get the goblin before you. And this is where that Stanley ability to just infuse lots of personality into a little bit of stuff really comes in. Well, I mean, especially because there's such truncated, like, you know, you get tiny, tiny bits of story. Being able to actually have wit <laughs> is astonishing to me. Like, I'm so impressed. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So as they break in, we alluded to this earlier, Hobgoblin notices he's being followed and grabs a guard's walkie-talkie. And I love the way he just assumes guards probably talk to each other. Warning, Spider-Man and Beast attacking, seek and destroy. And it kind of works because the guards do, in fact, capture Beast. Apparently manipulating guards is super easy. Should we just, like, break into somewhere after here, Lisa? Oh, you haven't done that yet today? <laughs> I've been at work all day. <laughs> all right, well, we'll talk. Okay. <laughs> So, um, Goblin, the Hobgoblin gets away with more data, and he destroys everything, but he destroys it in the most fantastic way possible with some finger guns. Pew, pew, pew. Right, like his fingers, when he does the pew, pew motion, actually shoot lasers. They're called finger blasters later. Oh my gosh. I what, love it. I, I love it too. What's, what tech gadgets would you like for back to school? Um, okay, well, you gotta have finger blasters, you gotta have your pumpkin bombs, most importantly, you have to have your pumpkin bombs with knives sticking out of them. I don't even remember which version of the story it is at this point, because I've been, like, focusing on this for a week, but at one point, he cuts Spider-Man's webbing by throwing a pumpkin bomb that then a knife just, like, pops out the top of. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. They're all, they're multi-purpose tools for him. Yeah, exactly. It's like the Leatherman of jack-o'-lanterns that explode that you keep in your purse. Well, that's that's what I have on my list as well. Legit. So it is now blackmail time. We now learn why the Hobgoblin is doing what he's doing. Apparently the DNA notes and this new data show that Landon's ill-defined plan is really about mutant genocide. He's going to kill all the mutants using science. Yeah, science is the way you kill people, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And the pacing around this scene. So this is strip number 45. As Landon says, I'll pay you at this address, our secret research lab. And Hobgoblin says, I'll be there. Strip number 46, the very next one. At Landon's secret research lab. I'm here for my money. It's great. He just goes between panels. Like that time Captain Britain disappeared from Excalibur between issues and, and we didn't even get to see it. And that was sad. I love how this strip like drags things out for an entire week until it does something that would have taken an entire week and drags it into nothing. Well, I mean, you have to do as much as possible with as little as possible, right? <laughs> Efficiency. <laughs> So Landon decides he doesn't want anything to do with this. He's about to shoot the Hobgoblin with his hidden blaster that he keeps in his desk. But Spider-Man, who's been following, shows up and takes the hit because he's a hero. Yeah, and luckily Landon already has the beast. So he's able to do the same thing with both of them, and that is throw them in a motherfucking laser cage. I love laser cages. I know you do. <laughs> oh, man. Like, I feel like it's actually very environmentally friendly because you don't have to use nearly as much metal. Like, the bars are just made of laser. They're just made of pure laser, and that doesn't cost anything. And it also makes means that people can't manipulate them in the, the way that they should. You know, like, if it was metal, somebody who has metal powers of some sort could go, eh. But lasers, those are tougher. That's right. No one in the Marvel Universe can manipulate lasers that I can think of more than a few people, more than a lot of. <laughs> the point is, nobody here in this scene can manipulate lasers. Do you think they have, like, a flowchart? 
at Marvel, like, okay, so this this comic book hero cannot be um, cannot be put in this type of cage. This person cannot be. <laughs> I, I mean, I bet they do, but more importantly, in the Marvel universe, I bet the villain Arcade actually just has made that painstakingly, like on poster board. He's very proud of it. <laughs> Maybe he's got one of those science fair backboard he puts he puts it on. I, I don't know. Now, we've learned that Landon doesn't like mutants. He said as much to Beast, and there's this mutant genocide thing he's doing. But I really enjoy his answer as to why he's also put Spider-Man in a cage. I consider all my enemies to be mutants. He's remarkably introspective. He understands how his own mind works. Do you think that he considers Hobgoblin to be a mutant? I mean, maybe. I'm actually surprised he hasn't mentioned it at any point. Like, Hobgoblin's trying to blackmail him. You'd think that would put him squarely on the mutant side of human versus mutant. I think that this, to me, is kind of comic book logic that I just let it be what it is. (laughs) That's entirely reasonable. So the Hobgoblin, speaking of, breaks in and attacks again because he's mad that Landon tried to shoot him. There's a grand melee, and in the midst of all of this, Landon himself gets knocked into the big vat of science stuff over which the laser cage had been suspended that he was going to drop the Beast and Spider-Man into to science at them. Yeah, and it's really amazing how these two kind of awful forces come together to destroy each other. Exactly. It's it's kind of delicious. What's also delicious is Landon coming out of the drink as this awesome Larry Lieber-drawn monster. Like, how would you describe this guy? Um, probably as a combination between of The Thing and Fing Fang Foom. Legit, yeah, because he's got that sort of rockiness, but he's also very lizardy with some elongated features. He just looks like a really, really big person with cracks all over them. Yeah. Oh man, that just that just makes it sound really uncomfortable. <laughs> like now I feel bad for the guy. Well, I mean, he did just turn into a mutant, the epitome of all the things that his bigoted heart hates. I think that he probably is not feeling the best. And that's the thing, yeah, like, the comic strip basically says, oh, you hated mutants? Now you're a mutant. Apparently what mutants are in the newspaper strip is a lot more basic, like, Spider-Man is considered to be a mutant, uh, the Beast is, of course, as well, and the Beast, in fact, says, well, I'm gonna take him back to the X-Mansion, and we're gonna help him now that he's a mutant. So, doesn't really jive with comic canon, but I guess if you're doing a simplified story for a newspaper audience, maybe that works. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of which, who do you think the audience for this is? Do you think it is people who are reading the comic books and are they're trying to get them to purchase the newspapers? Or do you think that they're the people reading the newspapers trying to get them interested in comics? It's hard to say because a lot of people were reading newspapers back in the 90s. This was before they basically died. But at the same time, the mid-90s were when superhero comics were at the biggest they'd ever been. So I'd imagine they were hoping for some cross-pollination, some newspaper readers to pick up comic books, some comic book readers to pick up newspapers. Not that that was necessarily in Marvel's interest very directly, but still. There, um, There is a call. I don't remember where it is, but it says, hey, oh, it's when they're asking to for people to clip in in the in the comic book itself they're asking people to contact their newspapers so that they can make sure that they have spider-man available for the magical crossover event did you see that oh no i missed that yeah so there is this there is this moment that it's like hey call to action all of these fantastic readers that really really want to know what happens next which spoiler (laughs) there's not a lot of crossover in the crossover event (laughs) no zero it's just parallel stories and actually with that let's go ahead and jump into the miniseries starting with spider-man the mutant agenda number one titled part one uh written by stephen grant penciled by scott collins inked by sam de la rosa and colored by john callis so stephen grant did all kinds of stuff he did avengers battlestar galactica punisher war journal the life of pope john paul ii like really he he did a comic based on that 
I think that sounds absolutely wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'd read it just to see what it was like. Well, I mean, it's it's just interesting because this this is not an era I know a ton about in in comic world, but this is also the era that I was coming up um, when com- like I was old enough to be reading comics at this time. So uh, the art is so much my childhood. It was so comfortable. <laughs> absolutely. No, I mean, this was the era when I was like just buying every freaking X thing that I could possibly find, even if I didn't know that this miniseries existed because it just said Spider Man. But yeah, it feels like coming home. And speaking of coming home, uh, Scott Collins, the artist, he actually did some comics that we skipped in this podcast. He did a a two-parter of Excalibur where the characters go to Wakanda and it's kind of uncomfortable in terms of its handling of race. But he did Thor Blood Oath way later, and that was really good. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) It is like a very mid-90s house sort of thing, like lots of muscles, lots of color. Lots of weird dislocated jaws. <laughs> yeah, Collins isn't always great with faces, specifically women's faces. But uh, thankfully, there aren't that many female characters, so yay. <laughs> it's it's understandable. <laughs> so we open, as so many X-related books do, with the Danger Room. It's all of the X-Men fighting in the Danger Room. We get a hint of their personalities, a hint of their powers. And I would like to point out something Archangel says about the locked-on missiles which have targeted him. I wouldn't expect less, Rogue. It's considered sporting to shoot at birds. Because as we know, Warren Kenneth Worthington III is an actual hawk. Really? I mean, he he said he was at one point, if you interpreted it a certain way. And we just keep saying it on the show, so eventually it'll be true. (laughs) Um, I do want to say right off the bat, in terms of the, the comic book, there's so much more space. Like, there's space to explore what each of these people are doing. There's, like, there's just one huge page that's a big explosion, and that is so fun! It's right at the beginning! (laughs) It really draws you in, or I guess blows you away, as the case may be. Oh, good one. (laughs) And, yeah, it's a very different feel immediately. I mean, we're getting a focus on way more characters. Like, in the comic strip, Beast is the only X-Men character that shows up. And with this, we get a bit of his background as he talks to... Angel about how things used to be simpler in the old days. They both used to look more human. And that's where we get a flashback to Beast's own time at the Brand Corporation, something that I believe wasn't mentioned at all in the comic strip. Oh, absolutely. There is the motivation. Well, the the parallel that I found was like the motivation was very standard, good personal interests on the behalf of my like race of mutants in the comic strip. And then in the comic book, it's like, no, I have this invested personal motivation for my past and for the evil that's being done to my people. It's, it's just so much more depth that lets you read so much more into the book. Exactly. And it's good that they do recap a little bit of this because the story in which Beast was in the Brand Corporation, that was way back in the day. That was in Amazing Adventures, Volume 2, number 11 through 17. And listeners, we actually had an episode about that with guest hosts L. Collins and Graham McMillan way back in episode number 69, Weird Science. So if you want to hear more about that and about Beast being a total stoner back in the 70s, you totally can. <laughs> so... Beast is, like, understandably upset with his role in, um, you know, bringing the, uh, doing research for the brand corporation and is kind of um, moaning about for a little bit. Rogue sees him and wants to know what's wrong, uh, and he allows her to touch him 
and she just like her jaw gets dislocated. She just she um, flies backwards. And yeah, it's pretty upsetting. It is. And she understands that as there's this announcement about the brand corporation doing a conference on mutants, why Beast would be so invested and so disturbed. And I really appreciate that all the X-Men characters that see this happening are like, hey, that's kind of uncharacteristic. Uh, what's going on? And Rogue's like, dude, just let him do his own thing. And that's basically the last we see of the X-Men right there, because from here on out, it's just a Spider-Man and Beast story. So I do want to tell you, I am so happy that I get to be here for this because Beast was actually my favorite X-Men when I was a kiddo. Fair enough. Yeah. And was that mostly from the, the comic or the animated series? It was or? from the animated series. And um, I realized while I was reading this that it might have something to do with my day-to-day life. I like somebody who's really, really smart and really, really hairy right now. Well, there you go. <laughs> I guess, yeah, Hub does have some things in common with, with Hank McCoy. They're both delightful. They're both delightful and they know a lot about a lot of stuff. Very true. Well, there you have it. Um, Therefore, uh, Hub needs to experiment on himself with the brand corporation and become blue, and he'd be even closer. I think so. I think he could learn to do with more science. Yes. So Beast heads off to the brand corporation to see how the research he did back in the day, where he accidentally turned himself blue, might be applied to nefarious purposes, because brand was, you know, kind of not very cool. One thing I did want to note about Beast is just in the artwork, his appearance shifts as they're talking about different stuff. Like, I really, it's something I love about comics, because I'm a big reader, I read a ton, but in comics, uh, something that I've noticed is how you're able to shift somebody's appearance a little bit when they're talking about different things. So, like, when he is angsty, he gets to be a little bit more feral, and when he is, like, you know, slinking around, he gets to be a little bit more feline. It's really, really cool, and it's really special, and it adds so much richness to the story for me. Yeah, the Beast, I think, is uh, an especially good example of that, just because he's got those human traits, those animalistic traits, and the balance between them, depending on his body language and his facial expression and just the way he's... Uh, the way he's positioned, the lighting that he's in, that can be anywhere along that spectrum. And that serves, I think, the story here really well as as we see, you know, his compl- complicated relationship with the furry blue mutant that he's become thanks to all this stuff from his past that's now coming back right up in his face. Yeah, and it's always cool to see how this actually leads into other storylines too. I mean, I think about how much work those tiny little comic strips had to do. Like they had to, they had to recap move action along and then set things up for the next, you know, the next day. Um, with this, you can fill so much of those gaps in with like character. And I could see how you fall in love with these people and like want them to be part of your life forever. I want to hang out with Hank McCoy or I guess just hub for that matter. <laughs> so Spider-Man also heads to the brand pavilion. In uh, this case, he's just being sent there by a professor of his to take notes And he talks a little bit to himself about how Brand's really cleaned up its act since its bad old days of doing nefarious things with villains like the Tarantula and Amazing Spider-Man number 289, which which I haven't read. The internet just just told me that. Um, Do you feel like the fact that this book starts off with the X-Men and, like, how interesting that story is is due to the audience that they're playing to? I mean, the X-Men were gigantic in the mid-90s. Honestly, it kind of surprised me that they didn't have the X-Men somewhere in the title. Like, I get that they wanted to match the newspaper strip, and Spider-Man had a newspaper strip, the X-Men didn't. But still, you could put Wolverine or whoever on anything, and it would just make bank back in the mid-90s. Interesting. So yeah, they just, they knew the comics readers would be more interested in this than necessarily in Spider-Man. So you don't have as much storyline with Spider-Man as you do. So maybe with a comics, with a comic strip itself, um, maybe because the audience is built in for Spider-Man and the idea between the, the idea about the crossover is that, um, there's more history. There's more story with Spider-Man in the comic strip and there's more story with the X-Men in the comic book. I don't know. I mean, you're kind of, uh, covering all your bases doing it that way. (laughs) 
But apparently the Brand Corporation also agrees that putting the X-Men on something is like printing money because as the Beast heads in, he sees this, like, standee. It kind of reminds me of those big cardboard standees you see in movie theaters for, like, the next big blockbuster that have sort of different layers and levels and are a little bit three-dimensional. But this one's of Wolverine, Cyclops, and Storm posing and looking all badass with a label below it that says, Mutation! Force without control? I mean, I haven't been to that many academic conferences myself. I think basically just one back in college. But I don't remember seeing anything nearly that superhero-oriented back then. You're going to go to the wrong conferences, Miles. I guess so. <laughs> i got to go to the Brands Pavilion. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like... So I have a friend who's a scientist, and my understanding is that they now they make posters. So there are posters that you can like set up and show all about your science. It's not quite as flashy as this, though. So basically scientific conferences or science fairs these days uh some some parts of them yeah so there are lectures and stuff too but she just went to one in italy she's a physicist she's really badass <laughs> she just went to one in italy and she's like oh yeah i have to get my poster and my paper together and it's a poster and she doesn't have to give a talk man i should have stuck with psychology instead of going into it i've missed out yeah there's a lot <laughs> we could say that about a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah fair enough fair enough Now, Peter goes in and sees another display, and this is another place the comic diverges from the strip. He learns what Brand's plans actually are, because in the comic strip, the science is incredibly vague. In this case, apparently, Brand is trying to graft animal traits onto human beings, which seems like a good plan, maybe? I think that there's this constant tension, at least this is my understanding, that there's this constant tension between people with powers and people without powers. And so in allowing people to access or purchase those powers, they're creating something that is there's a market for. I mean, that would make sense. And you certainly see later on in X-Men the uh, mutant growth hormone being taken by uh, by human beings to temporarily gain mutant powers. But in this case, like, there's no real mention of of why it's being done. It's just like, hey, science. I like your, uh, your theory, though. Like, that would make sense. I would want to have superhero powers if I was in a superhero world. This is what I do with comics. I try to make them make more sense. <laughs> they need it. They need it. Sorry. And Peter thinks about this, and there's this great uh, full page of half of old Peter with his Coke bottle glasses, like when he was a teenager, and half of current Peter with this spiderweb panel structure spiraling out from him, with actually the name Ditko worked into the spiderweb somewhat subtly, going through his own experience with animal-like traits. And so... The book is doing a lot of work to tie the type of mutant that Beast is, you know, mutants with the X factor, into what Spider-Man's up to. Yeah, and it makes total sense. It it, it provides motivation for the Brand Corporation. It provides motivation for Spider-Man. There's so much motivation. There is. There's also so much Hobgoblin because once again, after Spider-Man and Beast have said hello to each other, Hobgoblin shows up and starts blowing everything up and threatens to tell the audience what he knows. And so there's a fight. Again, we're seeing it very similarly to how we saw it in the newspaper strip. In this case, though, our first issue ends with a cliffhanger, or rather a chunk of ceiling hanger, as the entire ceiling is collapsing on everyone. It's a great... Oh, that's where you see them calling on uh, readers to look into the newspaper to see what happens next. So, extra motivation. (laughs) Yes, we readers get our own motivation. And that takes us to issue number two, Caught in the Act, with, uh, I believe, the same creative team. Are they doomed? Well, Spider-Man's got something to say about that. That might be true if you got no handy-dandy webbing. Go, Beast, go! You make an aces cheerleader, Spidey. 
I really like Spider-Man and Beast together. They're both science-y. They're both very quippy. Like, they're kind of natural partners in that regard. I'm, I'm surprised they haven't had more alliances over the years. They're both acrobatty. Lots of swinging, be it on web shooter ropes or be it on whatever branches are nearby that are convenient for Beast to swing on. Mm-hmm. I think that they work really, really well together. And it's also really light. Like, you know, you're talking about bigotry. You're talking about, like, either slavery or completely destroying an entire race. There's, It's nice to have a little bit of levity there. Yeah, I completely agree. And that works especially well for Beast because occasionally you will see him just get really dark. He's got this this facade of levity, and underneath that there's a lot of guilt because he knows that— the research he did to try to cure himself of being a mutant way back in the day now is being used for whatever evil the brand corporation is up to. Yeah, it's a pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty fun. I'm excited to see how the rest of this book develops. Indeed. So once again, Spider-Man and Beast follow the Hobgoblin and he heads to, uh, the labs of the brand corporation and is just gloriously creepy as he destroys the data from the computer and takes some of it for himself. What does he say, Miles? Come on, baby. Give it up for Jason. Data out. Virus in. It is so gross. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I get that he's supposed to be an unsavory villain and yeah, sure enough. Well done, Hobgoblin. I... I guess. Well, I think there's this one panel where he just looks kind of shocked and also like creepy. And to me, it looks like somebody just walked in on a kid masturbating. <laughs> so if somebody walked in on him, like, would they be more concerned with masturbation or with the outfit he was wearing or with all of the pumpkins with knives sticking out of them that are piled nearby? <laughs> so much to choose from. <laughs> yeah. Now, in this version of the story, the beast sticks around to check on Bran's research, making an excuse to Spider-Man for why he's sticking around. He's once again captured, but I really appreciate that he lies to Spider-Man a lot more in this. You know, he hasn't been telling the X-Men what he's doing. He hasn't been telling Spider-Man. He wants to take care of this problem that he feels responsible for. Yeah, well, it, it creates like a level of connection. Like, have you ever had something that you felt like you needed to fix yourself? So many things. <laughs> oh, the sins upon this conscience. <laughs> No, it is. It's it's just it's it's really refreshing to see somebody who is tortured in a comic book. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of options from which to choose. I'm just going to say I just I just have been reading 70s stuff recently. So fair. Yeah. And oh, the 90s, there were just like so many dark, tortured heroes and even heroes who were previously very light, like, say, the Beast got even more dark and tortured. Yeah, no, it feels right about the, for that era. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so um. The, uh, the beast is captured and, uh, the guard is really into being an anti-mutant. He says, I want to know if you can scream like a human. Let's find out, shall we? Yeah, I enjoy how sadistic just everybody who's allied with the bad guys are in this. Yeah, and the bad guys, you know, Hobgoblin is, like, way creepier and way more, um, avaricious? That's a word. (laughs) Way creepier and way greedier. And, um... Landon is way, way, way more bigoted and awful. Mm-hmm. And we see that in stark relief as the Hobgoblin asks for gold, jewels, silver, and also Landon's backstory. He is really <laughs> turning the screws here. He's really doing this blackmail thing. Yeah, Landon, you know, he's kind of reflecting on how he ended up where he is. And he says, I had friends then. We knew what we were working for. We had worlds to conquer, unaware our world was already conquered, that the mutants had come. He talks about his friend, Hank McCoy, being killed by this horrible mutant named the Beast, and the Beast then trying to destroy McCoy's research. 
we, of course, know from the Amazing Adventure stories that some of us have read. Uh, I, I still haven't read that story, actually. But we know that, you know, Hank McCoy became the Beast through this experiment he was doing. Landon is so convinced, no, Hank McCoy was a good man, which is to say he was a human. Therefore, the mutant that resembled him must have murdered him. And that level of delusion, like tying into Landon's bigotry, for me is almost a little pathetic, I guess. It's it's pathetic, but it also is confirmation biased. You know, like you believe all mutants are awful, therefore your friend cannot possibly be a mutant. Exactly, yeah. And I think that works really well. I think that makes him far more interesting than in the comic strip. It is, and it also um, provides a depth to the research and the motivation behind what I'm conti- what I'm assuming is going to be a, a, what I assume is going to be a continuing player in the comic book. Like, the brand corporation, this guy being whatever weird amalgamation of lizard rock man he is. <laughs> yeah, I actually don't know that Landon ever showed up after this, weirdly. Like, he was in these three versions of the story, and I think that was basically it. It's still being written, Miles. <laughs> That's true, there's still time. Okay, Jonathan Hickman, if you're listening, bring in Herbert Landon, the weird rocky guy that he turns into. It'll be great. So Landon is sure that Hobgoblin, after hearing his tragic past, will actually join up with him. Hobgoblin has no interest. I don't do charity, don't you get it? You played a bad hand and lost. I own you now. Where's my money? Not quite as good as that time that Luke Cage said to Dr. Doom after trying to get back the 200 bucks Dr. Doom owed him, where's my money, honey? But still pretty good. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing to me how well the two villains work together here. Like, one of them is so just jerky and avaricious and like, mm, gimme, 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 gimme. And the other one is so noble in his disgusting, gross bigotry. <laughs> exactly. I really appreciate that, like, Landon is a true believer. Like, he's awful, obviously. He's awful in every way. But it's interesting that he's so convinced he's right, that he's the good guy. Yeah, it also, it for me, it... Just thinking about the structure of the story, like having two villains juxtaposed against each other and having the two superheroes also is really, really cool. In the comic strip, it was able to move the plot forward in a really easy way, in a way, um, because you had like the evil and then the good. And it was a really, really stark contrast with this. It provides really good motivations for both Spider-Man and for the Beast to be in the book together. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And in fact, they'll soon be in a laser cage together, just like in the comic strip. But right now, it's just Beast talking to this guy named Dr. Everett Burgos, one of Landon's scientists. And Burgos talks about how he's going to cure Hank. When Hank protests he's not sick, Burgos makes his own position and the philosophy of Brand at this point very clear. Ah, but you are. You're diseased with the future, Dr. McCoy. A future we wish to take back and replace with one of our own design. This is a theme X-Men keeps coming back to. The idea that humans are terrified of mutants taking over. And um, we can certainly see a number of parallels in terms of the bigotry of the present day there. But this is just such a nice illustration of it. And I love that Burgos, he knows exactly who Beast is. He doesn't have the same delusion that Landon does, but he still has the same goals. He figures, hey, if mutants are going to make us irrelevant, we need to just get them out of the way. We need to save our own species. That's his logic. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting... Um, well, <laughs> we're living in interesting times. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the old, the old curse. And that leads us to Spider-Man the Mutant Agenda number three, Mutant Hood's End. Um, one of Landon's goons wonders whether, uh, what they're doing right now is kidnapping. Yeah, taking Spider-Man with them. But Landon is pure in his motivation, and he is convinced once again they are freaking paladins here. 
Don't you know what's at stake here? No, of course you don't. Tell me, do you have a child? A, uh, a son. What we do now will make his world safe forever. I don't want to hear about morality. This is a war for survival. He's a true believer. We have the opportunist of the other scientist, and then we have Hobgoblin just being a crook who's enjoying himself. I do want to note that Landon's suit in this panel looks like an evangelical minister from the 90s. I mean, it works pretty well. Like, it's perfect. They don't bring religion in explicitly, but you know, he's got that kind of fervor to him. It's pretty beautiful. So, uh, you know, at this point, we have a really, really wonderful scene where Hobgoblin goes to a bar. It's pretty great. He does the Marvel Universe equivalent of How Was Your Day, which is, you know, talking to your local bartender, except you're dressed up in a scary Halloween costume and griping about how you can't just catch a break because Spider-Man keeps coming after you. I like to think that this is like a like bad people, crimey bar. And so like showing up like that's not too weird. It seems to be because as everybody's uh, as everybody in the background of the bar is making fun of him, talking about how he just gets rolled by any superhero and maybe they should take him out too. Like I feel like if you were just a normal bar goer and there was a scary person at the bar talking about having just gotten beaten up, you wouldn't say, "Well, then I'm going to beat you up." You would say, uh, "Check, please," and you would leave. Mm-hmm. But this is the Marvel universe, so we get these special places. We do, and Hobgoblin is mad and beats everybody up, and this is where we get a little bit of insight into his character. He's not nearly as uh, thematically linked to the story as, say, Landon, but, you know, he wants respect. And uh, for him, money is a way to get respect. Which is fair. He seems like a petty criminal who got a cool suit, basically. So he takes that cool suit, and he, after he finishes his beer, goes to rough up a brand corporation guard using his <laughs> finger blasters. You love that. I do. He also has sparkle blasters, which are maybe better. What's the difference between a finger and a sparkle blaster? So the finger blaster is when he does the pew-pew thing and it shoots lasers. The sparkle blast appears to be when he just sort of, like, flings out his hand like he's got fairy dust in it, and fairy dust comes out, but it blows everything up. Oh, wow. He also has uh, basically batarangs in addition to his exploding jack-o'-lanterns. Like, I love this guy's theme, and I love that he can just fit all of this shit in this one little purse. <laughs> it's science. Um, so, we're at the lab again, and now Spider-Man's in a laser cage. Yay! Uh, Landon is not going to hear anything from the, the superheroes. He is sure that Beast is... Um, not Frank McCoy, or is not Hank McCoy. Yeah, he's 100% sure that Beast is the monster that killed Hank. He's also 100% sure that Spider-Man is a mutant too. Once again, if he doesn't like somebody, they're therefore a mutant. And he is going to use them to test the vat of sciency goo underneath this laser cage, remember that from the last version of the story, to figure out how to wipe mutants out. And not just wipe mutants out, but give them cancer. <laughs> it's really terrible. Apparently the sciency goo, which of course is derived from Beast's Cure Me From Being a Mutant research from years and years ago, will take all mutant cells and turn them into human cells and give them horrible cancerous growth in the meantime. So mutants will not just all die across the world, but all die painfully. Yeah, it's really, really not cool. At all. So we see a similar thing happen as in the newspaper strip. Hobgoblin busts in on his goblin glider. Everybody gets all thrown around and Landon ends up once again in the drink. But I vastly prefer the explanation for what happens in the comic book version. No, it makes more sense. I mean, there's more science here anyway. There totally is. There's so much science to work with. It's like having building blocks to build yourself a nice little castle of science. But as Beast puts it, Life is mutation. Even normal DNA will vary slightly from scientific norm. 
which means that Landon himself is a mutant because we're all mutants. It fits the theme of the X-Men pretty well. It certainly fits the theme of this book pretty well. And it's just such a wonderful, like, 1950s horror comic reversal, you know? This guy's own bigotry is being turned against him. That which he hates that he's been trying to destroy, he really is, and his own methods for trying to destroy it have now irrevocably altered him. Yeah, it also is like, you know, the Marvel thing. We're all a little bit weird. Exactly, and well said, yeah. In this case, the Beast doesn't take Landon back to the X-Mansion because the comic books know that mutants and mutates are very different things, and Landon is a mutate, damn it. But he does say he's going to try to help Landon out and then send the jerk to jail. Well, Beast knows all the science. He does know all the science. And as Spider-Man carries Hobgoblin off, Beast says to Peter, See you in the funny papers. Nice. So, yeah, those are our two printed versions of Spider-Man Mutant Agenda. We have this simplistic but very charming newspaper strip and this significantly more complex, I would say more interesting comic book version. Absolutely. I was really impressed with how much work um, the comic strip was able to do and how you can see, like, the parallels in the story, um, really, if like, how much motivation can help you connect to the story itself. Exactly, yeah. I actually cared about the characters in the comic book, whereas the newspaper strip, I was entertained, but it basically stopped there. Yeah, I'm just curious, like, if you read, if, you know, being a comics newbie, if I read the comic strip, I'd be like, okay, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but reading the comic book, I'm like, oh, wow, colors. Okay, and that, yeah, that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is, like, for coming from the outside on both mediums to a degree, it sounds like the comic book worked a hell of a lot better for you. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just, like, there's a lot more that you can do in that amount of space, period, right? There's um, the, the way that you're able to do layouts and make them really interesting. Like, there's a scene where, you know, where Landon's describing his motivation, there's, the layout is just crazy cool and it looks kind of cinematic. Um, there's the, the piece that you're talking about with Spider-Man with like the web and uh, him talking about his own mutation. Um, And then there's also uh, just the fact that, you know, you get to do so much more like the action in the beginning is so powerful and so engaging. Uh, So I really, I really appreciated that. I also like, like I said at the beginning, you know, this was a little bit like coming home. I watched the, um, the show religiously when I was a kid. So it felt like, oh, yeah, these guys, I know them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the 90s X-Men comics and cartoons were just so, so similar. Like, I was always very impressed that the cartoon could just capture not only the feel and look of the characters, but also what was going on in the comic at the same time. And in this case, it was capturing what was going on in, in a newspaper strip and a comic book only a year later. Because, and there's my segue, as we mentioned earlier, there were two episodes of Spider-Man the Animated Series, Season 2, Episodes 17 and 18, which were called, respectively, Mutant Agenda and Mutant's Revenge, that covered the same story again. Interestingly, one of the co-writers was J.M. DeMattis. We've been talking about his X-Factor work a lot lately. So, I'll just go through this pretty quickly. The X-Men's voice actors in Spider-Man the Animated Series were the same as in the X-Men cartoon. It was delightful hearing Gambit talking Gambit voice again and that sort of thing. Uh, also, as I mentioned, Mark Hamill is Hobgoblin. The voice cast is outstanding. I have one note to add. Um, my husband and I have been watching The Good Witch a lot recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, Martha from The Good Witch voiced Jean Grey. <laughs> wow. 
I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like, you don't really think about those actors being in other things, because to me, that's just, like, what Jean Grey sounded like in the 90s animated series, and why would she be another person besides Jean Grey? But isn't it amazing that you can hear a voice and then echoes of the past happen? (laughs) Exactly. It just brings you right back. Oh, man. And yeah, watching these two episodes, uh, even though they came out so many years ago, I was just a 10-year-old again. I, like, needed to buy some sugary cereal. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of the X-Men cartoon crossing over with the Spider-Man one, like every time the X-Men do something cool, the X-Men animated series theme song plays in the background. And it's amazing. It's basically <laughs> the greatest theme song of all time. Well, it just gets your heart pumping and you just get excited for no reason, apparently. For all the reasons. <laughs> so the cartoon episodes play out a little bit differently. In this case, the plot of the season is that Spider-Man has been mutating, so he seeks out Xavier. And Xavier's like, dude, I just help mutants accept themselves. Um, I don't want to cure anybody because there's nothing wrong with being a mutant. And Spider-Man's a total jerk and runs away. But Beast goes to meet up with Spider-Man saying, hey, uh, I've heard this dude land and helps with mutations. Maybe you should talk to him. At which point Beast is immediately captured. He's not really in mutant agenda very much in the cartoon. Because instead, Wolverine goes to find Beast and basically is by Spider-Man's side the whole time. Which, you know, is also awesome. (laughs) Again, it was the mid-90s. Like, Wolverine was what the kids wanted to see. I wanted to see Wolverine. I don't know about you. I drew Wolverine a lot in my middle school (laughs) notebooks on wide-rolled paper. No question. Um, But it it totally makes sense to me. And I, like, in in terms of the audience for this, like, talking about the audience throughout the the multi— This is a multimedia event, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of the audience for this, having Wolverine take Beast's place makes total, total sense. And Landon is totally different in this as well. He is, like— horrific he's so evil and also very british i appreciate that they're just like he's super evil therefore he has a british accent we've seen star wars <laughs> well it, it makes sense you need to connect to the to connect to the true monsters in this world <laughs> the brits <laughs> those brits <laughs> apologies to our british listeners you're all wonderful no, i mean really i like the british people i work for a british company well, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Landon also at the end when he turns into a monster turns into like this incredible monster. He's got these big tentacle arms and like this lizard duck face and he keeps getting bigger every time he touches electricity and they have to send in all the X-Men to fight him. Like there's a lot less thematically going on than in the comic book. I think that's probably the most emotionally and thematically deep, but God damn, these cartoon episodes are fun. And it's just so much action. You just get to watch things happen and people get bigger and grow different appendages. It's great. <laughs> That's what I want in all my fiction. That's what I want in all of my cartoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, new version of Sense and Sensibility they're doing with uh, everybody being mutants, which are fueled by sciency juice that they were trying to drop people into from a laser cage. I'm looking forward to that. That's happening. Listeners, if any of you want to make a cartoon like the one I just described, yes, Lisa, it's happening. We don't know each other very well. I'm very gullible. (laughs) Uh, For what it's worth, I I am too. So we're we're on the same page there. Now, the X-Men did cross over with the Spider-Man cartoon one more time. There was a Secret Wars story, but apparently they could only get the voice actress that played Storm because she lived near the studio in which they were recording. Everybody else was in Canada. And so just Storm was there. The rest of the X-Men were, you know, off hanging out, playing shuffleboard. They were busy. Well, it's so funny now to think that that was expensive at that time. Like now we could just be like, oh, yeah, go to your studio and record it. Exactly. Although who knows what kind of budgets they had for these cartoons. I mean, I'm just saying the animation was not Batman, the animated series quality. at all no it wasn't very good but it also it was you know voice acting in canada was a little less expensive it's just it's it's a different world now Mm -hmm. and in that world we have listeners and they have questions 
So, Miles, I have a question for you. Near Ravel on Twitter asks... Um, this is also the story that was chosen to be the crossover episode between X-Men, the animated series, and Spider-Man, the animated series. Do you think it was a good decision? What story would you use for a crossover episode between those two series? So I would like to point out there were also two X-Men episodes of Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, my personal favorite Spider-Man cartoon, those being A Firestar is Born and The X-Men Adventure, both of which were, I mean, okay, that show was terrible, but it still has a special place in my heart, and I love the Waka Chicka Waka Chicka soundtrack. <laughs> But to more directly answer your question, Nir Ravel, I think this is actually a pretty good story to adapt. It's a nice, concise way of talking about the Marvel Universe's attitude toward mutants, uh, you know, making clear the parallel to real world bigotry. And it also talks a little bit about the complexities of mutants' own attitudes toward their mutation. I didn't mention, but there's a female assistant that Landon has who's trying to help him destroy mutants because she secretly is one and she hates herself so much. And, like, it's actually a clever little bit. And having Spider-Man as the point of view character, as somebody who's worried he's, you know, becoming this a member of this group that he's scared of and sort of learns better, it works pretty well, I think. Uh, we also honestly didn't have that many 1990s Spider-Man and X-Men crossovers aside from the really big Marvel Universe uh, wide ones. There was X-Factor and Spider-Man Shadow Games. That wouldn't work. I mean, nobody really knew who X-Factor was, so... Uh, and then there was the time he teamed up with X-Force and Shatterstar stabbed out Juggernaut's eyes. I feel like that wouldn't fly so well in a kid's show either. So not only do you have limited options, but I think this is one that kind of covers your bases. Yeah, and it feeds to your audience. Very much so. Yeah. Nothing Jerk asks on Twitter... What comic strip would you want to see three-panel Spider-Man and Beast crossover with, besides Nancy? Hashtag Hank McCoy is lit. Ooh, Hank McCoy is lit. <laughs> um, so personally, I would really love to see a Peanuts X-Men crossover. Oh man, I, I can totally see that. Get that melancholy going on. Oh, so much angst. <laughs> Oh, man. So who would our point of view character be? Like, do we have a, a Charlie Brown equivalent among the X-Men who's just sort of like a lovable sad sack? Uh, sad sack, yes. Lovable, I'm not sure. <laughs> Are you talking about Cyclops? <laughs> I think that's totally fair. I don't know. I also like the idea that uh, Professor Xavier goes all the time. <laughs> yeah, but like telepathically with pink crap coming out of his head. I would love to see Gambit and Rogue as Mary Worth's intensely sexy new neighbors that she always gives knowing looks to in the third panel of the strip. <laughs> just, you know, characters that would show up every once in a while just being really over-the-top sexual. <laughs> um, oh, I would love to see Mutts. Oh, yeah, Mutts. I haven't thought about Mutts in years. How would that work with X-Men? Um, I think Beast could be involved. Okay, just have him be an adorable animal version of Beast. Oh my gosh, that's awesome, yes. <laughs> that actually reminds me, so uh, Kate Beaton, I believe is her name. Yes. Um, yes, she does <laughs> comics where the X-Men occasionally show up, and I love that in those Wolverine is just like a, a terrible cat. He's the most adorable, terrible cat, and he's so chubby and tidy. <laughs> her art style's wonderful, but yeah, he'll be like scratching up the couch and stuff with his adamantium claws. It's really, really good. She's fantastic. Yup. Um, I feel like if we could go back in time, we could maybe have Honey Badger and Jonathan, the actual Wolverine, show up in Calvin and Hobbes. But then again, I also don't really want to touch Calvin and Hobbes because it's this perfect snapshot, and I feel like anything you did would just make it worse. But at the same time, Honey Badger and Jonathan, I'm torn. I understand that. Calvin and Hobbes is all about the joy of childhood, but honestly, to me, so is X-Men to a certain extent. Okay, so maybe they would be too great taste. There, <laughs> there we go. 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters or concepts. Let's turn the mic over to... Herbert Landon. Soon, I will have my very scientific revenge on all mutant kind. It all started when my colleague Klaus was viciously killed by a horrible mutant who just happened to have the same mannerisms, personality, and general appearance as Klaus, but was clearly an entirely unrelated monster because... Blue. Klaus, you shall be avenged. But what's this? Why, Emily Welsh has stolen my DNA notes and is now trying to blackmail me. I may have paralysis rays, laser cages, and a surprisingly well-armed security team, but what am I to do in the face of Emily's finger blasters, sparkle blasts, and pumpkins with knives sticking out of them? Ah, screw this. I'm just going to ironically mutate into a monster and start wrecking things. That sounds way more fun. And thanks also to you, Lisa, for being on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Um, thank you for having this wonderful podcast that so many people love and enjoy. It's a true pleasure to be here. Um, if you feel like listening to my husband talk, you can listen to Tighten Up the Defense. Uh, he talks to his brother, Corey, who's kind of funny. And <laughs> It's a great show. They talk about the Defenders from Marvel and the New Teen Titans from DC, and it's, it's delightful. If you like this show, you'll like that show. Yeah, and then uh, we do a podcast for Patreon donors called um, About Howard the Duck, which has a very long title, but you should listen to that as well if you get a chance. Yeah, and as I recall, the first episode of that is available in the Tighten Up the Defense feed, even if you're not a patron, right? Absolutely. Excellent. So recommended as well. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men was recorded this week in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Jay will be back behind the mic. As Psylocke's history gets even more complicated. (laughs) 